0: From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Cree is a 32-year-old semiconductor company based in Durham, North Carolina. The company has developed and commercialized silicon carbide, developed the world's first blue LEDs, led the LED lighting revolution, and is now focused on changing the world again with power devices for electric vehicles and RF devices for next-generation wireless systems. On today's episode, I talk with four of the Cree founders, Neil Hunter, John Edmund, John Palmer, and Calvin Carter. They were part of the team that made possible what others said couldn't be done. They talk about what it was like to mortgage your house and pyramid credit cards to raise the capital to start the company. To choose joining a startup with a 4.1 month employment agreement instead of taking a much higher paying job at a well-established company. And what allowed them to keep going when the chips were down. They explain some of the critical make or break moments like choosing the right lease, overcoming fundamental technology limitations, and having to promise customers a product that didn't exist yet. You'll see that the success of a company rests in factors that people often take for granted. The culture of the company, the mindset of each employee, and the ability to fight and celebrate like a family. I'm excited to be able to give you all a sense for what I saw firsthand and the lessons I learned over the 25 years we worked together. Please note that this episode was recorded live at Lone Rider Brewery in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's what's on tap today, Enjoy. Welcome to Innovators on Tap. Uh, this is a live episode from Lone Rider Brewery here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, today we have John Palmer, John Edmund, Neil Hunter, and Calvin Carter, four of the original Cree founders who uh, hopefully can still remember some of the great old stories today that they can share with you about what it was like to start what is truly one of the most successful startups here in Raleigh-Durham history. And so... Uh, They've got a lot to be proud of, and what I want to do is share some of the stories, both the fun stuff, but also the magic that they created to build this great company. So, Neil, let's start on kind of a serious note. What was the original business idea for Cree, and kind of where did it come from?
1: So the original business idea um, started in actually April of 1987, and that was to do, I was in the controls business working for Johnson Controls. And I'd convinced my brother, who was very business oriented, like, let's go start something, let's do something to make a con- electric controls wiring company. Because at that point, you go out and sell controls to anyone, but no one could do the actual electric wiring that goes with it. So one guy was making a fortune, we figured we could come in and do something. Now, that company was going to do about half a million in five years, probably. So then he goes, well, I know these other guys I've been working with, okay. which are these three guys. John John Calvin and they've been working on this silicon carbide stuff and they've done some interesting things lately like made this really high-temperature MOSFET and you know Eric had been doing his master's degree my middle brother had been doing his master's degree uh, With these guys mainly tying up the phone trying to trade options, but he was doing um, Cubic growth of uh, silicon carbide in a solution. I was always a master's about that's exciting stuff. Anyway <laughs> we merged those two things Together in a business plan. It was like, okay, let's do a semiconductor startup all the way from crystal growth of a new material that you grow at uh, 2,800 degrees centigrade in about two or three days and put that along with being basically electrical contractor. So we actually wrote a business plan, dual plan like that. And to step back just slightly, I raised $15,800 in a second mortgage. Eric um, pyramided a few credit cards, so we had uh, twenty-eight thousand dollars in capital that we started with, and we guaranteed John Edmond four point one month salary, original employment agreement, had that because he had choices. And look at these choices: Westinghouse, GE, or Cree. Four point one month salary.
0: How,
2: how smart is he? So I was pretty <laughs> stupid, but I did it. <laughs>
0: Well, hang on, John. I want to go there. So, John, so seriously, you know, I think for many people that consider startups, right, a lot of them get offered deals and they never say yes. So Neil gives you this offer of, you know, 4.1 month salary. All right. So you decide you, know, you, you have to make this decision. Westinghouse or 4.1 month salary. How did you make this decision? And what the heck was Rita thinking at the time? Well, I don't know what
2: she was. She thinks she she was thinking I was crazy. But here's what happened. So I interviewed at Westinghouse, GE, and another company called WR Grace. And they, I told them, you know, I have this opportunity for this startup. And I think Westinghouse and GE were the top ones I was looking at. And the, and the guy was like, you know what, John? We will offer you a job. But if I were you, I would try that startup. And if it doesn't go well, the job will still be here. And that's why I did it. So
0: okay, so you say yes, and you have your great employment agreement. Who says yes next, Calvin or JP?
1: Well, they all did. Um, Cal, yeah, Calvin, yeah. Everyone said yes in the beginning because these guys were getting their degrees at various times. From 1987, we we started Cree at 2:30 in the afternoon. On July fourteenth, in nineteen eighty-seven, that was when it was incorporated.
0: Approximately.
1: Approximately. <laughs> you know, from there, we uh, all these guys met with us at night. We had a hundred and ten square foot office and kind of an executive office suite, so we didn't have to answer the phones. Ran about three hundred bucks a month, and we put three desks in there. We t- had a dot matrix printer, and it would take forty-five minutes to print one time. <laughs> And so we would go to eat dinner, and if the printer paper didn't get cocked out of whack, which happened often, then by the time we got back from dinner, they, they would be finished. Well, we got that version of the business plan.
0: So, okay, so, but, so JP and Calvin and John all say yes at the same time.
1: Absolutely. And Tommy Coleman, who was another founder, right. absolutely said yes because he had been working with us since April, right. and he was working with the Microelectronics Center in North Carolina.
0: So Neil, what were these guys required? What was their initial capital contribution to the business? So
1: all of us had to. Um, so we capitalized the company, and the people here, Tommy, my middle brother, and one other person, got capitalized in the original hundred. We did we had a hundred thousand shares of stock. So these three guys got ten thousand shares. We had a 0.01 or one penny par value per share. So they each had to write a $100 check.
0: And so they had to write a $100 check. And if
3: I remember correctly, JP, you were struggling to write that check. So, yeah, my my decision to join was not nearly as hard as Calvin's because I was still in grad school. I think I was pulling down pretty easy seven seven fifty 750 bucks uh, a month, something like that. <laughs> so whatever they were going to pay me was going to be a major step up. So... And I had nothing to lose at the time. So the decision to join was hard. But then when he said, you need to give us a check for $100, well, that just got real because I had a net worth of $800. So so JP, so you
0: you put $100 in, you end up with some percentage of the company.
3: I was shaking when I handed over the check.
0: What What did that $100 investment end up being worth at some point?
3: Oh, at some point? I believe it'd be 2000, it was worth $100 million. So, in, in hindsight, while it was risky, it turned out okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. It's all right. All right, guys. So, look, one of the things that uh, I think people don't appreciate because they see the success is that the reality is that most startups fail. Um, you know, they take on problems. But you guys took on a pretty crazy hard problem, which is we're going to invent silicon carbide and all these devices that go with it. So I'm curious, along the way, I remember being involved in a variety of challenges and issues that came up. But I'm curious from each of you, was there one problem that when it happened, you're like, oh, this could kill the company. I'm not sure we're going to make it. And I'd like to hear each of your story. What's your favorite problem or the biggest one that came up that you said, shit, this one might not work out?
1: (laughs) Oh, shit. We were going to, um, we had three choices of leases we were going to take. Both leases were landlocked at 4,000 square feet, so we would not have been able to expand. We ended up going with a company that just said, look, we'll, we'll keep you at the end of the building because we're scared of you guys. <laughs> Luckily, we were able to continue to grow piecemeal for the next seven or eight years to when we had 20,000 square feet and keep that facility going. If we had not Located there we're dead. We could not have the capital to move
0: So how about you John John Calvin? What was a problem that came up along the way that you're like? Oh, I'm not sure we're gonna survive this one
3: the, the biggest one. I remember so we were selling uh, silicon carbide blue LEDs so they were The best LEDs on the market at the time, but they were incredibly inefficient incredibly dim they weren't to us then, but so um there was a little company in Japan that brought out a gallium nitride LED uh, that was, I don't know, maybe a thousand times brighter, a thousand times more efficient than ours. <laughs> no, 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 no. And uh, that was that was kind of a
2: no shit moment. You took my story, by the way. So let me tell you give the give the facts. I know, but December 6, ninety three, I remember that. It, it, December seventh, I remember very well, but it's December sixth, we get a newsflash. This company in Japan that we know the chief scientist very well, Shuji Nakamura, they announced that they have a thousand milli-candela LED. We were at thirty. Thirty. <laughs> I was there. You remember I was this? There. So so. Well, yeah, but no, no. This, but actually, so they they were about they were about you know thirty forty times actually brighter. So we got microwatts. yes, thirty microwatts, and they were a thousand microwatts. <laughs> no, a thousand microwatts. Okay. Anyway, let let the LED guy tell the story. So, so the next day, I've, I reason I know this is we're doing this. John's organizes this innovation summit, and I'm giving a talk, and I'm going through all my old notes and all my old letters and I the next day December 7th I have got the letter 1993 I write Shuji Nakamura and say we'll be over in next week we want to jo- we want to f- join forces because Kelvin invented P type gallium nitride pretty much he's got a patent on it so and we're doing all this great work on on gallium nitride on silicon carbide and we're coming over so Eric Neil and myself got on a plane And flew and met with these guys. And they were like, okay, how many do you want to buy from us? (laughs) And then they're like, go home, guy chain. It was very interesting. So, So Calvin, a story from you that uh, you remember that you thought might
0: have killed the company along the way?
4: Well, I guess uh, from my perspective, it was when that little thing called a micropipe we discovered we had that in our material. And uh, so can that you was give people a, that an was a tough one?
0: Right. So give an example of you're trying to grow the silicon carbide crystal. What is a micropipe and why is it a problem? So we're trying
4: to, you know, we, we started off the company with growing wafers that were the size of your fingernail or crystals that size and made wafers that size and that's a little small for the semiconductor industry <laughs> but you know, we, when we got a, got them a little larger then we started taking a close look at them and trying to pull trying to do some photolithography on them and notice they had these little holes in them i mean all the way through a wafer and that they uh those were device killers and um so and they were they have been a really tough problem for thirty some years, but uh,
0: we have them now. So to, to be clear for the people that don't know a lot about silicon carbide, listening. So basically, you make this wafer, and it looks a bit like Swiss cheese, yeah, and, a, and, and, and like the Swiss holes cheese. are kind of a make it t- troublesome to make an effective semiconductor device. There,
3: that would be correct. And <laughs> the, the the funniest part is so when when this got found out in the community. The general theory was it is inherent to silicon carbide. They can never, you you actually can't grow silicon carbide without them. That this problem can never be solved. That would be one amongst probably 100 things that we solved that people said absolutely cannot be solved.
0: So, you know, uh, when people ask me to describe what it was like working with you guys, and uh, I always try to tell them there was this group of people that if someone said it was impossible, they were actually going to go prove it wasn't. And I would say that that, like many other things, there is so many different things you guys accomplished that I think the entire world said could never happen. I Honestly, starting with silicon carbide, growing it to start with, let alone every device you guys built along the way. So for the people listening to this podcast, um, I think people think that a lot of innovation is, you know, it's well-planned, it's understood. What was it like? I mean, was it more like, to someone today who's trying to think about how we pulled off innovation, how you guys did this, was it more like trial and error back then? I, Absolutely. I mean, it was
4: going with your gut, by the seat of your pants, whatever. Uh, yes, much more trial and error. Plus,
2: reading reading literature, what people had done in the past. Um, look, we didn't. We could grow gallium nitride, and, that, and it was for a program for lasers or whatever it was. Um, so, anyway, to make a long story short, we believed we could do it. We were very. Naive. At the same time, if you believe in yourself, which we all did, and we knew we could get it done, you just had to work our ass off.
3: Yeah, I, I was going to say because this is true for anything and everything we've done. There is no substitute for hard work. You can call it trying, trial and error. It's just hard, damn work. And you know, people always try to find some end-around approach. I had a government guy one time say. You guys agree. I don't like your brute force approach. I'm like, then why are you talking to us? We're only leading the industry is because we did. If we hit a brick wall, we just pounded right through it instead of trying to go around it. And that was almost always the quickest path to success. So
0: you guys, there is this idea or this belief that anything was possible that I think people underestimate. So as I get a chance to now talk to other people that have successful businesses, that's actually hardwired into them. And I'm curious, was that how you guys were your whole lives? Did you always believe anything was possible? Or was this something that it started to work at Cree and you were willing to buy in? Because the reality is is most people would have probably given up at some of the barriers you hit. In fact, I remember we hired a scientist. I think it was a crystal grower. And they joined Cree. And their comment to me was, "Is when I got to Cree, I would have never thought this is how these guys were doing it. Because no one would have hit that wall and actually said, we're gonna go right through it. And so is that, do you guys think, is that something you learned? Is it innate in you? I'm curious, what was the mindset that drove you guys to be able to do this? Because there, your ability to be incredibly positive that you're gonna figure it out,
2: kept us going in a lot of different days. So what do you think? One thing we did as a group, we believed in each other, which is a big deal. Um, there was trust across the board. It was like, okay, we can get that done. Calvin, I believe you can do what you got to do. Neil, I believe you got... Everybody had their own role. Every, we kind of split up the tasks. It's like, JP, you do advanced devices. JE, you do an LED. Neil, you just fucking make everything happen. <laughs> Raise the money. Get the pumps when we need them. And build a facility. But, look, the, we believed in each other, and, and, I, and we still do. I mean, that's, that's a cool thing about this group of guys. and uh, It's very unique. It's very rare. I would say, I would
1: say that's um, two things. The key to innovation, it's not about busting through walls, and I go back a little bit about DOEs and trial and error. You can, you can run DOEs, but after you apply a little bit of common sense, so there's common sense time, and then there's DOE time. And that, that's something that I see today in the companies I'm involved in that are doing research. You know, we, if you just start doing DOEs and you think that's how you wrench yourself out of this or go through that wall, you're gonna be spending years in the wrong direction because you just didn't use common sense.
0: JP and Calvin, anything that, you, where do you guys think this mindset or this idea comes from to be willing to believe it's always possible?
3: So I, I mean, I would say in my case, did I come into it inher- inherently having that? No. I didn't Uh, it was bread Uh, I give actually Eric and Neil a lot of credit for you know they would tell us they had you know all this faith in us to do things that we didn't necessarily have faith we could do but they're like well they're counting on me so I guess I better work hard Uh, you know (laughs) make it happen but the other big thing is you know this Oh, it can't be done. You know, the the question we would always ask is: Is that theoretically it can't be done? Like, is there a fundamental reason you can't do this, or is it just an opinion because it looks hard? If it's just an opinion because no nobody succeeded before or it's hard, well, that's when you pound through the wall. If you can't, you know, if there's a good theoretical reason, and there's a lot of stuff we didn't do. I'm frankly more proud of the things we didn't chase than the things we did. Um, because it just didn't make sense.
1: Well, many times though, we just rewrote theory too. Yeah. So.
0: Well, and I think that's the point, right? I think what people forget when it comes to innovation is you're making something that wasn't possible before possible, right? Whether it be proving that silicon carbide can be grown single crystalline, or making a very bright blue LED, or the stuff we're doing in
3: power and RF. I, I, it, all this I, oxides, stuff people, oxides on silicon carbide can never be reliable. That was put forth as a theoretical, you know, certainty.
0: All right, we're going to switch it up. So, Calvin, at one point you were quoted as saying, we definitely consider ourselves brothers. We love like brothers and fight like brothers and laugh like brothers. And I have to tell you, it definitely felt like I was part of a, a unique family, whether it be going down the lane and getting clothes lined or <laughs> being treated with all kinds of other really wonderful brother-like love. But in all seriousness, what do you think made that dynamic work? Cause I think it's unique and I think it's one of the reasons Cree was able to make it through the tough days. What do you think created that feeling of being like brothers?
4: I think it was acting like brothers where you would, I mean, we would be in the office or lab or wherever and be stressed out and we'd go out on the basketball court or playing uh, football in the, in the parking lot or whatever and knock the crap out of each other <laughs> and come back and, uh, come back in no hard feelings just go you know stress relief go back to work and possibility alcohol had a little bit to do with it too, <laughs> as, as far as
0: our bonding but uh. john john you guys have any thoughts about that uh, john you mentioned being
3: brothers earlier jp any thoughts on that either one yeah i mean we really did just pound each other in uh, feats of athletic bruteness but <laughs> tommy threw me and john through a wall together uh so i mean but but we did a lot of that but we would also prop each other up like not every day was was a cakewalk but you know usually we we would phase out like if one or two of us was was really in the the depths of despair the other guys would you know pick them up and uh that's what kept us going and you know it was it was family calvin Uh, maybe like breaking somebody's leg wrestling at work that's how you moved up in management <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but yeah, I did get my leg broken at work wrestling. Uh, wrestling like in the hallway or something, yeah, <laughs> right outside the bathroom. Yeah. yeah.
1: He Does also be- spent ten days in the hospital because he got <laughs> compartment syndrome from a basketball game as well.
3: Yeah, so, and I that was, I was not the one who broke his leg though. No, he didn't break my leg. He just put me in the hospital for 11 days.
0: So I do want to come to that. So let's talk about basketball. So um, one of the unique things that uh, I've told the story to many people is that on my original Cree interview, they said, hey, bring your shoes. We're going to play basketball at lunch. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned, and I I think in hindsight, is that it was a great way to not only have fun playing basketball but get to know people because how they behaved in that moment gave you some real insight as to who they really were and – and kind of how, how they might be when they came to work each day. So first question for you guys is, is do, you, do you agree that kind of how people acted on the court was a good example of how they would be at work?
3: Yeah, I, I would say we got a very good indication of how you would be <laughs> on the court. All elbows and knees. It just like this. But we, we actually developed a, a term, at the more we played basketball with you, we discovered that Chuck would not just get mad; he'd get swaboto mad. Man.
2: And I'm the one that didn't play basketball. So who looks the youngest up here right now?
0: Well, and so I j- who's not
3: using crutches? So
0: John, so John Edmund, I, I meant to bring this up because uh, I wanted to talk about basketball, and, and I, I was going to mention that uh, you were the one that first one that quit, and I was just going to attribute it because you were
2: soft. No. <laughs> And afraid of getting hurt. That's true. It was like rugby ball. It was not basketball. I'm like, I'm not doing this. All right. This is bad.
0: So I remember interviewing people, trying to find people that would fit at Cree. And what I was looking for was trying to describe something that you guys had. And how do we find people that kind of thought like you guys? And I mean the good parts of how you thought, not the bad parts. (laughs) So do you think – so the question I'm still pondering in my days is – talking to lots of innovators is do you think it's inherently in people to have this
2: innovative mindset or do you think you can teach it to people i think i think you're either passionate and passion's got a big part in innovation you either just love what you're doing and you know you can make it happen and you do whatever it takes to make it happen. That was one of our Cre the Cree way was do whatever it takes to get the job done.
3: I I would say you can teach it to some people, but if, if to the people who are um, inherently afraid of failure, you can't teach it. You you cannot be afraid to fail. You know you you have to just go in the face of certain doom. <laughs> <and> feel <laughs> feel good about it, Calvin. Uh,
4: I mean, there are things you can do to foster a little more innovation and improve, but I, I think it's an inherent thing. You're born with it.
1: Neil? I was never afraid to fail. I failed a lot of classes. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: No, but do you think, No, but seriously, do you think, is failure something that, uh, are people comfortable with that or they're not, or do you think we could teach it to people?
1: A little of both, but um, you can take someone who has energy and direct that energy, passion, you can direct that. But uh, I, know my, I know where I, I grew up without a father, and my mom would come home at 5 o'clock. She was working very hard to support us. And so between 3 and 5, I could pretty much do anything else we pretty much got into. So, and we experimented a lot with doing our own businesses. So re- wh- I didn't realize at that time, but growing up, I was creating this monster that would become uh, someone who, who was not afraid to take risks and and also you've got to be comfortable and understand your roots i wore hand-me-down clothes i shared rooms with my brother so i always believed you know and especially in the last 20 years if this if the worst happens i can always back i can go back to where i came from i mean i grew up going to state parks that was a big deal that was fun fun day get on the new river and canoe Um, that was a really fun thing to do so the simple things give me a basketball let me go down to a city park and play for three hours if you cannot find fun in the simple things in life then to me that's a big key in all of this because if you're trying to protect your masses this thing you've built whatever it is and you're and that's where you find peace good luck on that
0: so I get asked all the time, you work with these guys, really smart guys, amazing patents that they created, all this technology. So kind of a two-part question. Who has the most patents and who's
2: the smartest? Kelvin's the smartest. I've got the most patents. I think it's true.
3: I'm going to tell a story about John Edmund because... John Edmund would hear ideas like ITO and this and that, and he'd go, that is stupid! That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard! And he would storm out, and the next day he'd come in and say, hey, I've got an idea. <laughs> and it would be the same damn thing. But now it was his idea.
1: I honestly think it was a mental defect. not anything malicious on his side.
0: A slightly more serious question, right? So it's been... 1987 to now. I'm not even going to try to do the math. After a few beers, um, 32 years. Knowing what you know now, you guys have had great success and a lot of failures. But would you do it all over again? I'd have a sold second. out in 2000. So that other than that, yes.
1: <laughs> Neil, in a second. I mean, it's uh, no one can have a better life than I've had up to now, and I keep on. Of course, I can't stop, so I keep on imprinting the same. All the things I've learned, all the things I've learned about management teams, IP, good people. You know, I've met John Oakley. He's the CFO of NoBio, and we're going to make that a multi-billion dollar valuation company. I hope so. (laughs) Chuck's on our board, which is awesome. But um, he's got the same qualities that we had, and he just does whatever it takes. So you can find those people.
2: John, one of my famous quotes... You know it, we're on the verge of greatness. And I say it again, and that's why I'm still there, is we are on the verge of greatness. And I truly believe this is another one of those big waves, whether it was, you know, back then it was cell phones, and then it was, you know, LED lighting, and now and and now it's gonna be power and, and 5G, and it's really exciting. That's why
3: I'm still there. Um, John Alserson, would you do it all over again? Uh, yeah i would i mean there was a lot of a lot of pain (laughs) pain and suffering uh but i would and because it's been an incredibly unique opportunity and even with the various frustrations that come up it daily um i don't have to worry about uh you know keeping my job or whatever i do it because it's still fun apparently sometimes and uh it's very very exciting and we are still on the verge and so, yeah, I'm, I'm still having fun, so I'm still doing it.
0: If you could have a do-over during your Cree time, is there one do-over you would take? Is there one thing you said, you know, now that I know what I know, I would have done this part different?
1: I would have always raised more money when we had the chance. I would have used a lot more money to buy back our shares when our stock was down.
2: John, John, anything you do over? I, I think I would, have got, I would have basically said, Chuck, I want to get more involved in lighting earlier. That's what I wish I would have done because I think that would have made a big difference because I'm, I'm very bullish on LED lighting, obviously. I think it's a great business, and I it would be just cranking if I had just said, you know what, I'm going to go over to the lighting side and spend a lot of time with these people because I would have seen that things weren't quite right.
3: So it's been really hard to think of something I would do different because I'm essentially infallible. <laughs> I would say there's there's two things. One, even though I I feel like I was a pain in the ass a lot of times, I wish I had been more of a pain in the ass uh, to to try to you know keep us on the right path. Uh, the other thing, and I don't I don't know whether these guys know or not, but I actually made an offer to the board to buy the power and RF business in 2000. Not an offer. I said. I'll just do a management-led buyout. This this business does not have a place in Cree. Uh, I would do a management-led buyout in 2008. I think I did that, and I asked what the cash value of of Power and RF was, and I think it was 27 million dollars. So I was like, I could actually put that deal together with some subordinated debt, get you know five million from other guys, and and uh, take it out. But I didn't want to because I didn't think it was good for me because it would have killed me and uh, from a stress standpoint and uh, I didn't think it was the best thing for Cree shareholders but boy would I have made a mint
0: right, we're going to end with one last question so guys you know the podcast was designed for people that are trying to do what you guys have all done and Neil in your case done many times over one piece of advice for a young entrepreneur or someone that's getting ready to go down this path that you would give them that might not be obvious to them
3: I Honestly, and I've said it many, many times, I think our naivete was our strength because we did not know that it couldn't be done. And we had lots and lots of people tell us it can't be done. Uh, But we were too young and and stupid to to listen to them. And that's kind of the only way you get the undoable done. And, And I
2: remember when we told Bob Davis, who was our was our advisor at NC State, he just kinda of laughed. He said, You guys are gonna start a company? You wanna give me stock? Oh, it's never gonna work, but go ahead, I'll take it. And yeah. and that's I'm I'm just doubling what he said because it's absolutely you just gotta believe in yourself and say, We can do this. And we did it. The biggest thing is everyone is
1: look gonna look at this and think, again, they look at it's too easy. I mean, I always say and John and I talk about you know, we raised fifty million dollars in the last six months, and we did it in two meetings, pretty much. One a little bit longer, but so people get the idea in your company that's really easy to get capital, and it's really hard. The other thing is, go with your passion. John John Edmonds said it earlier. You don't have to have a massive company with seven thousand people. You don't have to be Facebook, Google, or anything else. It's not that's. I mean, you got to be passionate, but you've got to be within reason. You can have just as much stress and just as much fun being running uh, five trucks, being an electrician, five trucks running an HVAC company, and bringing down a million bucks a year when you're 32. So small ideas are, you know, you call them small. They're massive. They're incredibly life-changing, and I think people they're always you know they're saying okay I'm either going to work for someone or I'm an entrepreneur and there's a lot of stuff in between Calvin
4: well I, I definitely agree with what Neil was saying about going or but John and Neil about going with your passion uh, if you don't have the passion for it it's not going to work uh, and I I really think that's one of the strongest points to, you know, for entrepreneurship is being passionate about it. And and like Neil said, no, it doesn't have to be the next Google. It, you know, I, I wish a lot more kids would
0: see that these days. So guys, this has been awesome. You have been uh, my brothers for the last 25 years. And uh, I just appreciate the opportunity that uh, you gave me to join Cree. And then even crazier opportunity that you Neil know, you gave me to be CEO and the three of you guys actually embraced it embraced it in whatever way you did, so there may not have been a lot of opportunities but no seriously i I can't thank you enough for the opportunity it is a what we were able to do and being a part of it i uh I get to describe this to other people today, and uh there was a magic about what you guys accomplished um that I just hope to share with other people because I don't think you realize this, but uh, what you consider to be common sense or logical is not logical to others. And so, you know, my journey now is to try to help people see that, hopefully inspire them to take some of the stuff that you guys did so naturally and, and do something amazing with it. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you built a great company and uh, you ultimately changed the world. So thank you very much for what you've done. And uh, with that, I think we can go have some fun. More fun. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. I want to thank the Cree founders for joining me on Innovators on Tap and for exploring the reasons why Cree has been so successful and reflecting on some of the many challenges they faced along the way. My hope is that this episode makes you understand that creating a successful company is hard work, but also that there are simple things that a company can do To exponentially increase the chance of success. You heard how each of the founders had the innovator's mindset that no matter the problem the company faced, they all trusted each other and believed that no matter what, they would find a better way forward. As John Edmonds said, No matter the challenge we were facing, I always believed we were on the verge of greatness. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast will help us do just that. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Let us know if there's a guest you'd like us to have on the podcast or an innovation topic you'd like us to take on. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.